Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, it's the first week of the new year, and that can mean only one thing. Well, well, it can actually mean a lot of things, but one thing it definitely does mean is that the legislative session is right around the corner. The 2024 session begins Monday afternoon with Governor Brad Little's annual State of the State address. He'll lay out his agenda for 2024, and that sets the stage for what the legislative branch does over the next three months or so. Quinn Perry of the Idaho School Boards Association and Matt Compton of the Idaho Education Association are two fixtures at the State House. They're two education lobbyists who follow the session very closely. Ryan Supi and I sat down with them both this week to get their uh, sense of what they expect to hear during this 2024 session and one issue that they hope lawmakers will pay more attention to. Here's our conversation. Well, Quinn and Matt, Happy New Year, and thank you for joining us. I, I feel like, you know, Bill Connors from Groundhog's Day saying, well, it's Groundhog's Day again, or it's the legislative session again, but it's a really important session coming up. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get with both of you to talk about what you're looking for and what you expect and what's at stake this session. So, Quinn, why don't you start and we'll oh. go, go to Matt and we'll go from there. Damn. My crystal ball is hoping that finally we get a meaningful attempt to solve the school facilities issues. I think the ProPublica series and kind of the work that a a few folks had been working on over the interim uh, really will pay off. And I'm hoping that my good, the good takeaway from the session is we start to tackle the the giant problem that is the school facilities crisis in Idaho. so yeah, I'm going to start with that. Yeah, I think uh, both Ryan and Kevin, you all highlighted recently in the story uh, about the the enrollment versus attendance yep. issue and what kind of you know, catastrophic um, impact that that could have on school districts. I know that administrators and, and the school boards association since last March have been having conversations with lawmakers over the last you know, so the, since March for a year now, um, <laughs> talking about what, what uh, that cliff might look like. Um, and I, I do certainly hope that lawmakers heard that cry and uh, are looking at some solutions going into the 2024 session. And I, yeah, I think in general, it'll also be, I mean, it's an election year, so you kind mm-hmm. of never know what really is going to come at you. But in general, we still know that Idahoans and hopefully their state policymakers value public education, and we hope to just see continued investments into those areas. So, and I want to drill into all of that, including the fact that it's an election year. But let me start, Quinn, with the facilities issue. I mean, this has been such a long-standing impasse at the legislature in terms of the state's role yep. in facilities as opposed to the local role. Why is it different this time, do you think? Or potentially, why could it be different this time in terms of getting a solution? I think that part of why it's different is that the the traditional solutions that we've kind of relied on for decades are just not working anymore. Um, we know that bonds routinely fail in the state of Idaho and the supermajority is a continued conversation and discussion facilities have become more and more expensive. Uh, we we talk, you know, I remember we did a podcast not that long ago about yeah, school cool. facilities where we said it's not, there's no silver bullet. There has to be multiple approaches to solving the issue because everybody's issues are different. When you have North Gem, a small district in Bancroft, Idaho, that, you know, 
they don't even have the market value to build what it would cost a new school uh, to build a new school today. Um, the, a large portion of their burden is carried by like very few agriculture farmers who could not carry that tax burden versus West Ada, which is still growing, uh, needing to expand their their offerings as far as school buildings go. So I think that is a part of it is the traditional solutions really just haven't worked. Um, I think in general, because we've continued to kick the can down the road, it's just time for policymakers to take a thoughtful look at addressing it. Because if we don't take action soon, things could get dire in ways of something catastrophic could happen, something something I don't even want to speak about could happen. But also, we need to start making sure that we're not throwing bad money at problems, right? We need to make sure that we're making serious investment and that that investment is actually going to turn around and not just put Band-Aid after Band-Aid on a school building. So in general, I think that's why. I also think it does help to see things like the ProPublica series that the statesman partnered with where you're seeing the, an insider look of what school buildings might look like in the state of Idaho. If you're a parent or a teacher, a school board member, administrator, you're used to going into buildings, you're used to seeing kind of the condition that they've been in, but I think the general public has largely not been able to go in and see kind of maybe the condition of their facilities. And to what extent, and, and Ryan's done more of a reporting on this than I have, <laughs> House Bill 292 and the money that went Definitely. out in terms mm -hmm. of property tax relief. Is there a concern that because of that law, the legislature is going to feel like they've addressed this issue? I definitely feel like there is an attitude by some folks that think 292 kind of absolved their responsibility on school facilities. But that was largely a tax relief bill. It really was not a meaningful investment into future facilities. Now, it might be in decades from now when we're paying off existing bonds or paying down supplemental levies, et cetera. But in general, the 292 was a property tax relief bill. It was not really built or intended to be a school facilities bill. Um, so I do think it's related. I, I always worry that lawmakers might do one bill and think, okay, well, we've solved that issue. Um, no silver bullet, no, even a bill this year, if there's something that comes out, it may not be the silver bullet that we need for the next 50 years. Um, they've been grappling with facilities since that 2005 ruling from the you know, Idaho Supreme Court, and bond levy equalization came out of that. That's a great program, but that only works if your community agrees to pass a bond at two-thirds majority. So it's time to tackle new, new problems with new solutions. Uh, keeping with the supermajority, um, Senator Lent has proposed a bill to lower that threshold. Uh, well, we haven't seen it yet, but mm -hmm. we've heard that there's a bill coming. Mm -hmm. um, I guess first it would have to change the Constitution. It would. Kind of an uphill climb there. Can you speak to, is that a silver bullet to solve the facilities issue? And if so, is there a chance that would ever pass the legislature and then voters as well? I'll speak to that. Yeah, it's actually Senator Lent, Representative Furness, both have been working, yeah, on a constitutional amendment. And I, I also haven't seen a final version, but I think their vision for it is like you have increased voter turnout, you have a lower threshold, right? Um, 
Is it reality? Do I think it will pass the Idaho legislature? Uh, Too soon to tell. But in general, I routinely hear from policymakers that they want school districts to run their bond ballot questions in a general election. And if you make it to where you want increased voter turnout, I think you would see school districts really move every question to the general election. Uh, where they would have increased voter turnout. We want increased voter turnout, so that is not a problem for us to have it based dependent upon uh, the turnout of the voters. Um, But it isn't a silver bullet. I don't know. It is and it isn't. I mean, obviously, it's easier to pass. Just like supplemental levies, it's easier to pass. But facilities cost significantly more money. Granted, it is over a longer period of time than, say, a supplemental levy. But I'm not suggesting that um, lowering the threshold is all of a sudden going to start building new schools in the state of Idaho. It's a tool that I think gets people to a better spot. We're one of few states that has a supermajority requirement. Um, You know, I saw the Mountain States Policy Center put out kind of a a reaction to what I think the, the Lent furnace bill saying like no it's, it's important well the hard part with the supermajority is that it really removes like the one person one vote because for every no vote you need two yes votes and so it really kind of does make your vote less important or less valid so um a majority of Idaho legislators, the governor, people are elected on a simple majority. And I think in general, it's time to start thinking about what tax questions could look like, higher voter turnout without that increased burden of having to have two yes votes to cancel out one no vote. If I could get in just a little bit on the facilities piece, you know, I think a piece of legislation like this would, would actually serve to allow the, the the legislature to absolve themselves the responsibilities that's yeah. outlined in the Constitution. They have an obligation to fully fund education, and that includes school buildings. And the IEA and others, we've done surveys of voters who say even if the local like community is unable to pass a bond or a levy, that it is still up to the states. Mm-hmm. To, it's their responsibility to come in and ensure that the school buildings are safe and functional. I mean, uh, student safety is a, a significant priority for parents and communities. And if school buildings are not safe for students and it's not a safe learning environment, then the, the state should come in and, and resolve that. Um, I, and I think that the state could probably get quantity of scale if they really um, wanted to address facility issues across the state. Like as, as a vendor, they could probably address many of the problems across the state in many districts um, by by you know contracting with with a company at quantity of scale, whereas a small community is going to find it much more difficult. Yeah. Let me shift Matt to what you were talking about at the outset about the funding formula and the question of enrollment base versus ADA base. Yeah. How do you see that getting resolved this session? Because there's, a, there's obviously a tension here between education groups who want the attendance-based funding, the stability of the attendance-based funding. You've got a governor and a lot of legislators who are very adamant about enrollment. I think, uh, you know, I, I, that is interesting. Um, I, I think that there has to be a conversation around the, the funding formula holistically altogether. I think that the only way that we shift to enrollment-based is by talking about the funding formula. Um, and that's probably a, a deeper conversation. It's, it's, it's something that law, lawmakers and constitutional policymakers, such as the superintendent of public instruction, have to be able to sit down and say there's a give and take here on, mm-hmm. on what's, what's going to happen. 
um, because I, I, I think that's, that there are folks in the legislature who are not interested in seeing just small tweaks or um, adjustments to the funding formula. They want to see a much more holistic approach to addressing the funding formula. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that, that it's going to be a very, that's going to be the difficult conversation. Did Superintendent Critchfield's committee get get us closer to a point where that holistic uh, conversation I think happen. so. I think she had the right people in the room. I think she had a, a, a really good cross-section of stakeholders that um, had their voices heard, and there were a lot of lawmakers who heard from the stakeholder community as well. So mm -hmm. I think that there were some very convincing ar arguments and there was good conversation about the need. I agree with that, and I think the most important part of those conversations was that we were actually all at the table talking about the issues, the ramifications, and kind of the needs that school administrators and leaders need at the local level. You know, since 2019, there's been kind of looming ideas about a funding formula, but no stakeholder had ever been involved in those discussions. And quite frankly, you need the people in the trenches to be able to understand and know what's coming in a funding formula, to be able to make sure that it's going to be implemented accurately and that budgets are stable. Um, so in general, I think those conversations were positive and they, they really did bring us all together first time in many years for all of us to have that conversation. So. And Quinn, just sticking with that a bit. Um, Back in November, the School Boards Association passed a bunch of resolutions, one of them on the funding formula. Yeah. It wasn't, here's what the formula should be, it was, here are the principles that should be in a funding formula. Can you talk a bit about what those principles are? Yeah, sure. And it's actually a continuing resolution. I think we've had one on the books since about the 2019 funding formula discussions, but the two biggest tenants are predictability and stability. School leaders need to be able to understand what that allocation looks like so that they're able to build stable budgets and not have shortfalls in the middle of the school year, in the middle of a contract. Um, it also ensures that we can retain some, some model of the career ladder because that was a monumental task. I, it, that actually predates uh, me and my time at ISBA, but Matt was probably really involved. Um, in that original iteration, but being able to compensate your highly educated, trained staff who've gone above and beyond their traditional certificate. Um, you know, transparency is big. I think the legislature wants transparency, just like local school districts want transparency. And um, I, I will admit, I will be the first to admit to that our current funding formula is convoluted and a lot of people don't understand it. I don't know that that's a lack of transparency, but the lack of simplicity has really created some issues um, with perhaps policymakers not understanding at the local level like a school business manager would about what that allocation looks like. Um, so those are really some of the core principles that come out through that. Um, again, we've had it on the books for several years. It aligns with the Idaho Association of School Administrators guiding principles that really that, that predictability, stability, transparency, and really just being a part of the conversation. I think that's another really big piece of uh, this last summer and uh, Superintendent Critchfield's committee is that it brought really some of the key stakeholders like the school business managers to the table to really make sure that policymakers understand that when we're educating kids there's like the business question like the the operative like how much can we actually afford should that be driving the conversation around student achievement and student outcomes um, and I think that kind of gave people on that committee something to think about like we want to do what's right for kids what's best for kids what's best for their for their future and we need that partnership with the legislature to make sure that's a continued success so 
we've gone almost 15 minutes without talking about school choice. Mm. But we know that that's coming this session. We know it there's going to be uh, proposals either for tax credits, scholarships, whatever form those take. Your groups are opposed. Your members are opposed. How do you see that debate unfolding? And how do you, what's your strategy uh, in terms of countering the movement towards school choice. Yeah, I think the, the amount of out-of-state money and the lobbying effort that's come into Idaho over the last couple of months has been pretty significant. And when we talk to lawmakers, uh, we hear that they've never felt such immense pressure on a particular issue than, than on vouchers or tax credits. Um, and uh, on the other side of the coin, you have organizations that are out there intentionally trying to diminish the, the public's uh, trust in, in schools. The, they're trying to diminish the reputation of public education through library bills um, or critical race theory. They're talking about indoctrination. Um, and so they're, they're building the case as to why, quote, unquote, government schools are not healthy and practical places for students to go. And so we want the, the state, we want the government to pay for our kids to go to a private parochial school that doesn't have any accountability. We think that that message resonated very well last year with lawmakers. It is just going to require us to be much more vocal about it and having educators and other stakeholders at the table talking about you must fully fund your constitutionally obligated system of public education before you consider funding the private institutions. Yeah, I think every year that I've worked uh, in the legislature, I feel like there's been some kind of school choice tax credit bill. And to Matt's point, uh, it's hard for organizations like ours to compete with the millions of dollars coming in from outside influence that really want to take a stab at this. And I do think this year that will look more like a tax credit. I think that's where more folks are more uh, hesitant to vote against a tax credit than they are like an ESA. So, and I think we saw that kind of towards the end of last session where kind of one of the last ditch efforts was a tax credit bill coming through the House Revenue Taxation Committee. I don't think it ended up getting a hearing or moving forward, but that sort of signaled to us what's coming this year. And I just keep telling people, like, find me a state that hasn't enacted a tax credit, an ESA, whatever you want to do, that hasn't become a total budget buster. I mean, look no further than the Arizona that's now facing nearly a $1 billion cost for their ESA program for 62,000 students. Idaho cannot afford to stand up a third tier of public schools or, or a publicly funded school through that uh, are private, and they're not open to every child. Um, so I think we just have to keep reminding folks that we don't have to look very far to see where our neighboring states in the union have really struggled to actually keep up with these. They are budget busters. Uh, we already are facing a, a smaller uh, surplus in the state of Idaho uh, this coming year. And in our opinion, Idaho can't afford to uphold its constitutional obligation to the public schools in the state of Idaho and its other things like infrastructure, health and welfare, other major areas of investment that are needed through the state's budget uh, to be able to hand out tax credits to wealthy families who are already paying for private school tuition. It's going to be our obligation, our responsibility to point to the um, Arizona model and say, we didn't see a massive flight out of public schools. We actually just saw wealthy families um, getting vouchers to send their kids to schools that were already mm -hmm. attending public uh, private institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, we can also look at the reports that demonstrate that those private schools actually increased tuition, uh, and so it became a profit mo motive for private schools. Um, which is quite con concerning. 
Um, and then just the overwhelming lack of transparency that either private or parochial schools have. Um, they have discriminatory um, enrollment policies, um, and for a legislature that demands accountability, uh, there seems to be just a, a lack of appetite for accountability when it comes to vouchers or tax credits. I think, it, oh, go ahead. Does the argument or the strategy for both of you change depending on the form that this takes? Because the Senate voted down in Arizona like ESA program and, and voted it down pretty handily, but they also then turned around a few weeks later and passed what was billed as more of a pilot program and add on to empowering parents, micro grants. Do you have to uh, approach those differently, strategically? Yes and no. I mean, they're different proposals, so we certainly have to pivot our talking points and our strategy, but they all do the same thing. They yeah, all the do the same implications, yeah. and we think they're consequential, and we think they're bad for Idaho, so the message stays the same. The strategy will change based on the talking points, the committees, of course, you know, who it goes to absolutely matters, but... Uh, the negative ramifications that could come through any one of these programs stay the same and consistent throughout. Well, Ken mentioned these proposals found some favor in the Senate last year um, and were ultimately stymied in the House Education Committee. Um, I talked to Chair Yamamoto earlier today and she said, you know, this year they're approaching it the same way as they did last year, looking at it through the same lens, which is that constitutional obligation to fund schools. Do you think there could be a proposal that could get through that committee? Is a tax credit a little bit more digestible for people who might be generally opposed to school vouchers? I think that other proposals <clears throat> could be leveraged, uh, like if there was a pretty significant facilities bill that was put on the table that some, some lawmakers may see this as an opportunity for a horse trade, or if you pass this, then we will pass that. Uh, and, and that, you know, we've seen that happen in legislatures of past, any session prior, yeah. um, where something gets held up, held hostage until something else goes through. I would not be surprised if folks were looking at opportunities to leverage either all of the public education budget or facilities budgets, uh, facility proposals, um, in order to get something passed. And to your point, Ryan, I think House Education, uh, the folks on that committee, they're pretty... They're pretty staunchly open about how they feel about these types of programs. Uh, they were not, they did not hide it during the session. They didn't hide it during their campaigns or when they're back home in their districts, which is why I think you'll likely see a proposal that will usurp the education committees. And all of this is in that backdrop of the May primaries. And I'm struck by a couple things about the May primaries. First of all, the money that seems to be coming into these already. primaries already, yeah. already. Uh, from, from both moderate groups and from more conservative groups. I mean, there's a, you know, it's starting early. And almost all of these primaries that, I'm, that may be the most heated really have an education nexus, whether it's Julie Yamamoto or Lori McCann or the Senate Education Committee members who are you know, going to face some, some challenges for more moderate politics. Mm -hmm. How does all that factor into how the session unfolds? I think, uh, you know, uh, 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 
Representative uh, Clow announced that he was going to be seeking re-election here recently, and he, he marked like March 31st as being sine die. And I just don't think that that's really the case. I think the the the, the implications for the primary is that the session is going to run long. I mean, folks are going to want the opportunity of the state house to be the stage, the platform where they're campaigning on the taxpayer dime. They don't have to go back and have conversations with with constituents because they're getting free media every time they open their mouth in a committee or a different bill. That I, I, I feel validated here. I've been saying this for a long time. This, this bromide about you know election year, short legislative session, I don't buy it anymore. And you're making the point that I've been trying to make for a long time just, just better. Right. Right. Well, none of you are my friends today because <laughs> we don't want a long legislative session, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's the easiest way to campaign is often from where all the reporters are and where all the media is and where public television is streaming live. And I think it is often easier to campaign via the legislative process than it is to go back home and knock doors and do the work and attend meet and greets and do those things. Like, I think that makes total sense. You know, in traditional uh, election years, I think we've seen a lot of like the social issues. I always joke like I never knew I was going to be a social lobbyist when I became a public school uh, person. But I wonder how that will play out. It, you know, libraries are obviously still a thing. I think we will see many library bills this year. I don't know what they will look like entirely, but I think we will see several versions of them. So we could um, have libraries be the last issue of the session. It could again, be the go home issue <laughs> again. Um, but I also think like a lot of, you know, critical race theory, like these things that kind of were taking up the airspace of the session in previous years have largely been settled uh, by them passing laws and them being enacted. Perhaps they're going through the court process right now. But um, so you never know what's coming at you. But in general, I still want to believe that, you know, a majority of them say that education is their number one issue and they believe in their neighborhood public schools back at home. And we're hopeful that that will still translate to a positive thing that happens during the session. But you just never know. Ultimately, Probably the biggest issue is money, funding public schools. Um, was there anything that stood out to you both in Superintendent Critchfield's budget? Anything you liked, anything you didn't like from what she's posed so far? I think the biggest question that some school leaders definitely still have is her proposal to change, obviously to change the funding formula is big, but also the outcomes-based formula. Um, you know, is that predictable or stable? It's hard to say. Um, at the same time, I think policymakers will support an outcomes-based funding model where districts are rewarded if their students are showing growth in their academic progress. Um, obviously, we all want to see students succeed and grow um, in their test scores, but we also know that test scores are not 100% a way to determine if a child is succeeding or not. Um, so I think that was a big step. Um, I think some of the most unpopular proposals in the past have been pay for performance proposals from previous superintendents or, or lawmakers. You know, it was one of the major um, sticking points when the career ladder was originally being developed. So I think educators are going to find um, any hint of a pay for performance bill um, or incentive program uh, to be a, a, a non-starter for them. But in general, I think Superintendent Critchfield, she's she's very transparent with the stakeholders. She's very, uh, very much wanting us to know what's going on in her budget. There is nothing to hide uh, when it comes to her. She's very transparent. She's a former school board member, and she's 
Um, she wants to work closely with all of the stakeholders to make sure that her budget priorities make sense, that they make sense to us at the local level, and that we can. it's something that everyone can advocate for. If there's something that I wish folks were looking towards, whether it be the superintendent or lawmakers, it's the behavioral and mental health issues that are happening in schools. Um, and this is for, for students <clears throat> and for educators. Uh, educators are reporting that the behavioral issues in schools are at an all-time um, breaking point where students, um, it's not just like throwing spitballs or you know paper airplanes or passing notes, but uh, kids that are having meltdowns and um, tantrums. That's what Boise, Boise District was talking about a few weeks ago. It's right. Like, sobering. It's sobering when you're talking about just this, these pockets of high suicide rates. It's, um, it isn't the, the behavioral issue of you know talking out in class, but it is, it's the emotional, social-emotional work that all of a sudden becomes a bad word to say at the legislature as well. Is how do we make sure that these kiddos are having, um, having a safe place in school where they can have conversations and, and learn how to channel their emotions um, and, and also what's happening at home um, so, that, so that school districts can find you know, interventions, wraparound services in communities so students have access to, to professionals. Yeah, I agree with Matt. I think the number one thing that should be talked about nonstop this session is handling the youth suicide crisis. And and as to Matt's point, the teacher suicide crisis. There has been teacher suicides this last semester, too. And I think it rocks a community so hard when you lose a child, especially any child. But, you know, when you're hearing about junior high students taking their life, I mean, it rocks the adults in the room where people are feeling ill-equipped to actually match and help a child when they're in those types of crisis. And when a student takes their life, it's devastating, but it's it, it transcends to other levels of the community and the school. And school districts need more tools and resources and support to be able to handle those things. And the worst thing that we could do, that the legislature could do, is politicize what's been happening with youth suicide. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that there can be some kind of solution or, or discussion that could talk about what kind of supports that might look like. But my goal and hope at the end is that it's not politicized into being something that it shouldn't be because we need students to be able to succeed, but we also need them to be able to stay alive. And, and we, as the adults in the room, need to be the ones to support them. How do you envision that it would be politicized? I think to Matt's point is like social and emotional learning. That's a, a, a trigger word that people want to attack when in reality so much of that is like being able to have safe spaces for students to share and to be welcomed in school and to be able to process their emotions in a meaningful way. Um, so I think the worst thing that could do is kind of compound the the misinformation about what social and emotional learning is and really make sure that we're equipped to talk about today's issues and today's issues is that the youth are struggling. They're not doing well and we need to have resources to be able to combat that. It also comes in forms of legislation that limit what counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists can talk to students about in school yeah. um, because if there are topic areas like uh, gender identity then um, and, and that is off, off topic. You know, the, the, these are they're real issues that students of all ages are dealing with. Um, and it is one of the more significant um, reasons why students are taking their own life. I think phones, too. Phones are the other thing. That I don't know that any of the adults in the room 
at least in this room, are like even willing to talk about is like how much kids are on their phone nonstop all day and how much of their social life is connected to their phone. Um, there's a constant joke. Uh, my husband's a teacher and he would love a sign that would just permanently be like, get off your phone because it is, it is a constant struggle for educators and leaders to be able to get kids engaged and keep them engaged, but also to keep them off their phone. And, you know, I think you've seen some districts take bold stances of like a no phones policy. And I just wonder where that will go. But I think that absolutely plays into how students mental health are doing is their cell phone. Our, our surveys of, of educators in October indicated that when it came to policies that could uh, improve the, the behavioral issues in schools, it would be a no phone policy um, and some kind of restrictions on social media in schools. Is that something you've talked to lawmakers about and gotten any interest? Um, not a lot of interest. Uh, uh, there have been there has been pushback in other pieces of legislation. You'll have Senator Cook uh, was mm. looking for he had legislation that would have uh, like had some kind of filter for uh, adult content on phones, um, and for whatever reason, particular think tanks came out and said that that would be a violation of like some kind of company policy. And really, it's it's a parental choice. It's not a company issue, um, and so it, it's only a parent's choice when it suits whatever think tanks. Um, objectives are, I believe. And uh, to answer your question, I have had no meaningful conversations about state policy, but I do help uh, craft model policies at the local level, and I think there has been an uptick in interest in a no-phones policy, but there's hurdles there. Uh, school safety issues, lots of parents want to be able to have connection to their phone. What I would love is like if a cell phone company came out with like a school mode, just like we have an airplane mode where maybe you can access a text from your mom or something, but um, you know, that's, that's not something for the legislature to tackle. I think you need to talk to someone in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think I need to go to Silicon Valley for that. What is an unexpected issue that you think the legislature might try to tackle in education? Something we haven't talked about. From <laughs> oh man, um, I think you'll see some West Bonner stuff. And I, I don't know what that means entirely, but I think we saw lots of hurdles with West Bonner. When vacancies are declared, what happens when trustees don't show? So I do think- Superintendent qualifications yeah, yeah. Superintendent to... qualifications probably will get brought up, but um, yeah, I think those types of things will probably come up. Um, and there were real issues there, do not get me wrong. Like, lots of hurdles facing, what happens when you have two vacancies and then you're the, you know, the third member doesn't show and you can't have conduct business, you can't move forward. So I think there are some issues that kind of need to be closed in Idaho code. Idaho code is not perfect, it turns out. So I do think there needs to be some some addressing of that, but too soon to tell. Yeah, I think uh, pieces of legislation that makes it easier for lay individuals, those without a background in superintendency, to become a superintendent is likely to come forward. We saw that at least in charter schools, you can hire somebody on a superintendent certificate um, without a background, even in education. Um, and then, then the state al allocation still goes out so that you can um, pay the individual that, that's superintendent. I think that there might be an attempt to cross that over into traditional public schools as well. Um, we worked with the charter school network to ensure that something like that wouldn't happen, but it looks like it increasingly become may become more popular or interesting for some legislators who uh, 
who thought that the stuff that happened in, in, um, in Barnard County was, uh, went the wrong way. I don't know how to say that. Yeah. Well, Quinn and Matt, we, we covered a lot of ground here. I do want to correct the record. I'm not advocating for a long legislative session. I'm just okay. predicting it could be a long legislative session. And we'll be talking to you a lot during the session, uh, Ryan and I both, as the sun folds. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Again, that was Quinn Perry of the Idaho School Boards Association and Matt Compton of the Idaho Education Association. As the 2024 legislative session kicks off, I encourage you to check us out at Idaho Ed News on a daily basis because we will provide the latest coverage on education policy and education politics. Ryan Supi and I will be at the State House on a daily basis. As long as the session goes on, we will be at the House and Senate Education Committee meetings. We'll cover the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. And that Budget Writing Committee, by the way, is taking a very different approach to their job. I hope to have a story next week that sort of lays out the changes and what it means and how that's going to play out. We also have several stories already at idahoednews.org that will help you get uh, geared up for the session. Ryan's got an excellent story about the changes in school funding formulas. You've heard a lot of debate about whether Idaho should distribute school dollars based on student attendance or student enrollment. It's a really big difference in, in terms of how much money goes out to the schools based on whether the money goes out based on attendance and enrollment. Ryan lays out the numbers and helps uh, lay out the debate that we're going to hear during this uh, next legislative session. Ryan also takes a closer look at the other K-12 issues that are likely to shape the session. I take a closer look at higher ed and what's at stake for the colleges and universities. And I also have a follow-up piece about Idaho Launch. We finally got some numbers about launch applications. Pretty surprising numbers, I gotta say. Uh, we lay those numbers out in a story on Thursday and kind of help foreshadow the debate that we're gonna hear about the future of the launch program. That's gonna be an issue that we're gonna hear about during the 2024 session as well. It's not just today, it's not just coverage from the State House, by the way, at edoednews.org. Darren Savant will continue to cover education news uh, from across the state. He had a, a really good piece this week about increases in average teacher pay. If you haven't read that story yet, uh, I encourage you to do so. Carly Flandro will continue to cover education from across the state, headquartered in Pocatello, and she will continue to um, offer up her podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. So keep an ear out for that as well. So a whole lot going on at idahoednews.org and beyond. If you want to get uh, tweets of our latest stories, bulletins, and breaking items, go to the site formerly known as Twitter, now known as X for reasons I don't quite understand. Join us at Facebook, uh, get links to our stories there, and comment on our pieces. And again, watch the website daily, and keep an ear out for the next edition of my podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Take care. Bye.